everyone and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. This week on the podcast, we are responding to an article that I read from Baptist News Global. It was pretty bad and some other guys have already responded to some parts of it, so I probably would have not covered it except that near the end of the article, there were some statements about the poor that use scripture in their defense, but by twisting scripture against itself to use the poor as a weapon against those with whom you have political disagreements. So we're going to hit several highlights, several things that stuck out to me throughout the article, but mostly focus on those points about the poor near the end of it. Also, at the end of this episode, I'm giving a bit of an update about Theana money, so Make sure to stay tuned until the end for that. But before we jump into that, I want to ask everyone to subscribe to Theana Money, give it a rating and review, tell your friends about it, and listen to past episodes if you're new to the podcast. Also check out Crucifor Media on YouTube, where there are a lot of great videos, at least one or two of which are from myself, because Theana Money is part of Crucifor Media. So the article to which I'm responding today dropped last week on Monday, February 7th. Mark Wingfield, the executive director of Baptist News Global, is the author. It is titled, It's Time to Stop the Insanity That is Killing Public Education. I'm dropping a link to it in the description of this video. That way you can, if you want to do so, check it out for yourself and make sure I'm not lying about what he said or otherwise misrepresenting him in my response. And like I said a moment ago, I am mainly going to respond to the economic parts. A.D. Robles and John Harris have done more general responses. In fact, it was their videos that informed me about this article. However, I still want to cover a few things he said before I dive into that part about the poor and how they are used as a weapon against those who do not agree with support for public school. So the few things I want to say about this article in general. First, if I didn't know the source, and before I read it, you told me that an atheist wrote this, I would have probably believed you because it reads like that. Some parts of it really remind me of the horrendous book, Divided by Faith, which, as far as bad books that are opposed to Christianity are concerned, is up there with books written by the heretic James Cone. And if anyone wants to challenge me on what I just said about Divided by Faith and James Cone, I'm up for the debate. I've actually read Divided by Faith and a good handful of James Cone's books, and I took copious notes on those James Cone books. Even went so far that I wrote an article about James Cone where probably like a third of the word count in that article are quotes directly from James Cone to show in his own words that he was a false teacher. And part of the reason I got that feel from the article is the 
statement that Mark makes about racism. Apparently, the reason that Christians want to send their kids to private school, or at least the original reason for it, was because they are racist and white Christians didn't want to send their kids to schools where black students attended. Sure, that was probably the reason for some people. Some people probably had that in mind because you can find just about any horrible idea among at least one person on the planet. But that doesn't mean that was the main reason for Christian private schools. Like my dad joked around sometimes when I was a kid, someone somewhere disagrees with the idea that our tires should be round. I'm sure that's not actually the case. Maybe even that one is. But someone somewhere probably has some really bad idea. But that doesn't mean that that was the main reason for Christian private schools. This assumption, this anti-Christian assumption from someone who professes faith, ignores that maybe Christians want an education for their children free from the statism, atheism, macroevolution, and other things taught in school. Especially these days when critical theory, LGBTQ+, and other things are being taught as well. And that this has nothing to do with the ethnicity of those at the public school or the private school. I mean, as young as elementary school, children are being taught a progressive view of the Constitution. I know because I remember a teacher teaching that, I believe it was in the third grade, when I attended a public elementary school. This assumption that Wingfield is making also ignores people who send their children to private school, Christian or otherwise, because public schools are such a disaster when it comes to education, and test results bear me out on that. Also, if people only go to Christian private schools to get away from the non-white kids, then tell that to my black and Asian friends that went to the same private high school I did. I graduated from a private Christian high school, and I had a lot of Asian and black friends that were at my school as well. Or the Christian private college that I went to, where there were black and Asian and actually quite a few Hispanic, I think more Hispanic than black or Asian students at this school. If private schools are just to try to get to these all-white cliques where there are no minorities, then tell that to all those friends I had there. And since I mentioned critical theory, this article says that is made up. The exact quote, that way we hear Wingfield in his own words, is, quote, the made-up hullabaloo about critical race theory. At this point, I don't even feel like responding directly anymore to people still denying critical theory is a thing, unless they make me believe they are genuine in that claim and are willing to be corrected. Most of the time anymore, people who say that tend to be people who are malicious and just gaslighting us. And they sometimes make it obvious by promoting critical theory nearly in the same breath that they are denying its existence. I know I not to be so exhausted in the fight against critical theory, and believe me, I have done more to fight it than most people. I've been in this fight for years, whereas most people just joined it in the last year or two. Not that I'm against them, I welcome them to the battle. Sometimes it just gets annoying to see so much gaslighting and so many people believing the gaslighting. Also, Wingfield seems to have no issue with public school libraries having books that contain pornography. Because if you point it out, he just closes his eyes and says you're lying. 
That is in his section where he talks about banned books and insinuates that accusations of books and schools containing pornography is made up. This is despite the fact that parents have read books contained in elementary school libraries and meetings to show that why they should be removed, and the parents were told that they cannot read those books out loud because of the explicit content they contain. But they were not removed and still allowed to be in elementary school libraries. So not that Wingfield literally is okay with pornography in public schools, but he essentially is when it exists and he denies it while fighting against banning such books from public schools. Ah yes, then we get to one of the favorite attacks from Big Eva. And I really had to restrain myself to not use apostate as an adjective for Big Eva there because I am more and more thinking that is the way we should treat them. But I'm trying to show some level of generosity still. Also, I'm not sure if Wingfield is a part of Big Eva, since I didn't really know who he was before this. But this article is like something that came out of some of the worst parts of Big Eva, so I'm treating it as if it's within that camp, even if Wingfield himself is or is not big enough to be part of Big Eva. Anyways, the attack that so often comes from Big Eva is to blame everything on, quote, white Christian nationalists who are apparently anti-science. And making that accusation makes me wonder if Wingfield is a theistic evolutionist. I know some of the more common presuppositions behind that term, or rather accusation, which we won't get into now, but... Evolution is often one of them, so it makes me wonder whether or not he believes in the biblical account of Genesis 1 and 2. Never really been familiar with him before this, so I have no idea where he stands on the origins of creation as told in scripture. Okay, so I am going too long on the non-economic aspects of this article, so I'm just going to let you all know that he thinks we are, quote, ideological terrorists and let you think about that what you may, then continue on to the economic aspects of the article. Near the end of it, actually I believe this was how it closed, Wingfield wrote, For the sake of all children, for the future of our communities and our nation, we must rise to defend public education that lifts up the least of these among us and helps every child excel. Why? Because this is the very mission Jesus said he came to earth to accomplish. Read it for yourself in Luke 4, 18-19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When attempts to control public education do not amount to good news to the poor. The release of people held in educational captivity. The opening of minds to reality and do not set minds free. The spirit of the Lord is not there. Not to stand up for this Jesus agenda is insanity. Now, I said at the beginning of the episode that in this article, Wingfield weaponizes the poor. Do you see how he did it in that quote? He quotes where in Luke 4, 
Jesus quoted from Isaiah 6, 61, 1-2, teaching that it was a prophecy that he was coming to bring good news to the poor and release to the captives. Wingfield then applies poor there to economic poor and captives there to educational captives, whatever educational captives means. Finally, he says that when Christians try to control public education, which means that when we think public education should be Christianized, I guess, or in my case, when we as theonomists think that the government is going outside of its God-ordained bounds for its sphere of sovereignty, and that education should be in the hands of the family sphere of sovereignty, we are not proclaiming good news to the poor, and we are not teaching release to those in educational captivity. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is not with us because we do not support secular public education. If that sounds like a massive stretch, that's because it is one. If that sounds like twisting scripture to satisfy your political ends, that's because it is. First, I think it is debatable whether Jesus is talking about literal poor and captives and blind in this passage. Remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus described the poor in spirit. So poor in scripture does not always mean literal poor, though granted, it often does. But what was the main point of Jesus' mission during his incarnation? Let's go back to Matthew 1. We read in verse 21, For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' main mission in the incarnation, well, first it was foremost to glorify God, Westminster Shorter Catechism, answer one. But the particular way in which he was glorifying God by his incarnation was by the redemption of sinners. If we read this verse with only the physical in mind, then we will come out with some sort of liberation theology like James Cone, where the main point of Jesus' work on earth was to liberate the oppressed from physical bondage and anything to do with spiritual redemption is secondary, if it's mentioned at all. This is one reason why, though not the only reason why, because just proper Bible interpretation is another reason why, just good hermeneutics. But that is one reason why I think John Calvin is right here when he interprets the poor and captives and blind as spiritually so. He writes on page 229 of his commentary on the Synoptic Gospels, the prophet shows what would be the state of the church before the manifestation of the gospel and what is the condition of all of us without Christ. So what's the condition of all of us without Christ? What is our condition before the gospel has given us new hearts? Likewise, John MacArthur writes on page 270 of the first volume of his Luke commentary, the good news of the gospel is that the spiritually impoverished can find salvation. Later on in that section, MacArthur writes that the good news of the gospel is that God has sent his son to free those who are in spiritual bondage and that the Messiah's mission was to provide recovery of spiritual sight to the blind. If we make these verses purely about literal aid to the poor and captives and blind, our gospel will begin to resemble more James Cone's heretical false gospel than the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God.
that point aside, though it is a pretty considerable error, let's look at Wingfield's other issues in the quote I read a moment ago. He seems to claim that where people do not support the poor, in this instance via public education, the Holy Spirit is not there. Like much false teaching, this has some truth to it. James 1.27 sums up Christianity this way, Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. We as believers should be caring for the poor. I did an entire episode recently in response to the accusation that conservatives do not care for the poor, and you should go check it out after you finish this one. However, just because we should help the poor doesn't mean that anything that is done in the name of the poor is a good thing that God honors and anyone who ever goes against any of those things is going against God. God will not honor it when we obey one of his commands by disobeying a different one of his commands. Obedience is better than sacrifice. We cannot care for the poor by violating God's command against theft. We cannot care for the poor by allowing the government to take the tithe or higher, the tithe being a 10% tax rate, for itself. Doing either of those things, even if done in the name of helping the poor, goes against God's word. We also cannot go against God's roles of the state or civil magistrate sphere of sovereignty in the name of caring for the poor. And that is exactly what Wingfield does here. Because the family sphere of sovereignty, not the state, is the one that should be caring for the poor. As well as the church sphere of sovereignty, and the family sphere of sovereignty should be the one in charge of the education of children. If you say that when I oppose unbiblical attempts at caring for the poor, the Holy Spirit is not with me, you are telling God what is in obedience to his word, even if it is actually in disobedience to his word. Then on that shaking foundation attacking me so that I will feel compelled to agree with you. Wingfield also calls supporting public education the Jesus agenda and thus insinuates that not supporting it is against Jesus because Jesus supports it. I think that one of the main ways that spiritual manipulators do their work is by saying that Jesus supports either them or what they are doing, and that therefore, if you do not support them or what they are doing, you are against Jesus. By making this argument here, Wingfield, and I don't say this lightly, Wingfield reveals that he is a spiritual manipulator, twisting scripture to support his own ends, and claiming that those against him and his ideas are against Jesus. In summary of what I've said in the last few moments, don't weaponize the poor by using them to attack those who disagree with your political and economic ideas. By doing that, you show that you do not care about the poor themselves, you just care about how they are a tool for you to accomplish your own ends. Now let's give Wingfield the benefit of the doubt here. Maybe he actually truly wants to help the poor and just innocently believes that this is the best way. Honestly, I don't think that is the case because of the malice that seemed to be present in his article. 
maybe even perhaps the anger present in his article. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt for a moment. If he thinks that public school will actually help the poor and that Jesus would support it because it helps the poor, and we as Christians are commanded to help the poor, if that is the case, then we need to explain to him the spheres of sovereignty that I mentioned a moment ago and how education falls under the family sphere of sovereignty, not the state one. I can't go into a full dive on that right now, but you can listen to the episode I dropped a month or so ago on that topic if you want more details. It is simply called Spheres of Sovereignty. We also have to ask if public schools are actually an effective means of educating people. Anyone who knows me knows that I love Paul Washer, and a story he has told in his sermons is actually helpful for this point here. He was, some time ago, given a textbook on logic by a friend of his. He took it home and began reading it. The information in it was, it was difficult, but not too much. Uh, It was probably on the same level as some of the logic classes, maybe some of the heavier logic classes that Paul Washer took in college. At least that's the way he described it. And after a chapter or two, he sets the book down, goes into the kitchen, gets a drink, comes back, and for the first time, he actually pays attention to the cover. I don't know if Paul Washer just always had this book front cover down and never noticed the cover before or what, but he finally notices the front cover of the book. And he notices there's something strange about it. It looked like some kind of ink blot of a school teacher with young children. Washer wondered why and decided to read the preface that he had apparently skipped and learned that this was a logic textbook for school children to use in America's colonial days. So if public schools are so good, then why were school children in the colonial days, probably, you know, elementary or middle school age kids, learning logic on par, maybe even better than, what most of our colleges and universities are teaching today? So the legacy of public education is that now we're learning logic, this degree of logic at 20 instead of at 10. Okay, then. And I said recently that I want to start giving summaries near the end of the podcast episodes to give a concise overview of the episode. And this episode's no exception to that. Today we saw that public education is not a form of caring for the poor and those in quote, educational captivity, whatever that means, that a Christian can support. Public education does not deliver the results it promises, and even if it did, this is not a responsibility of the state. Also, any argument that just claims that Jesus' main goal was to care for the poor, and so therefore you have to agree with me because I care for the poor, that's not a biblical argument. And it's closer to spiritual manipulation than it is to scripture especially if what is being proposed goes against scripture, as it does here. Now, if what is being proposed is in line with scripture, then we need to have a discussion about how to present something with biblical humility and such. But that is not even on the radar with an argument such as this one. And before we close, I want to say something that I have mentioned before when responding to Big Eva 
please don't hate Mark or Tim Keller or Russell Moore or anyone else for their views and the damage they are doing to the church. That would be sinful unless it was perfect, righteous indignation. If you are capable of that, then I guess go ahead because we should hate what God hates. But be careful that it isn't an excuse to justify sinful hatred, especially when someone who professes faith in Christ is involved. I was very frustrated with Wingfield as I was working on this episode and had to pray a couple of times to God that I might not sin against him in my heart with my attitude as I was preparing and recording this. Just because we are fighting ideas contrary to scripture, that doesn't give us permission to sin against those with whom we disagree. And one last thing, and this is more of an update on Theonomony as a podcast and a slight change in direction. I, at least right now, have become convinced of the Dorian principle that was discussed in last week's episode. I was already working a bit on a Patreon to help me fund the podcast and maybe even make some extra money from it. But that's going to look a bit different now. The expenses for the podcast are going up with some advertising I'm doing here soon on a podcast with which many of you are familiar. To find out which one, wait a little bit because I don't want to say anything just yet. So if I still do a Patreon, in keeping with the Dorian principle, I will make all posts on it free for everyone, whether or not they are subscribed. And I only want anyone to give to it if they want to co-labor with me by helping me get more advertisements for the podcast out to spread the message of what theonomy teaches us about economics today. Please don't support me as a thank you for any form of reciprocity, but only if you want to co-labor with me to help spread the message. I also was looking at having advertisements on the podcast here soon. But for the time being, I do not plan on having those either because I think doing so might be going against the Dorian principle. So that was just a little bit of an update about Theonomony and some of my thoughts about going forward with the podcast. That was this week's episode of Theonomony. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Your law is sweet, oh you sad.